All right. Welcome to episode 69 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we're doing a very special episode. Uh, as you see, I don't have Leon physically here with me and I'm not physically there with him, but we're each in our own respective homes. Uh, neither of us has Corona, so that's good news as far as that goes. That's not why we're doing this, just a special condition for today. Mm-hmm. And today we're going to be talking about a new uh, Netflix special that came out. Uh, it's called The Playbook, uh, Coach's Rules for Success. And both me and Leon, we both watched it and we both saw a lot of value in the show. And we thought it'd be great to talk about it on the show because um, there's a lot of things that that spoke to us. Um, but yeah, before we get into that, and I hate to surprise you with this, Leon, but just a question. Uh, what were your thoughts on the uh first debate between Trump and, <laughs> and Biden. The left turn. Wow. I know. I know. I just, I wanted to bring it up. I thought it would be interesting to discuss for a second. Okay, sure. Um, is this based on what we talked about before with like the 15 minutes of like the topic of the week? No, actually, believe it or not, it's not. It's just okay. more like, um, I actually was interested. Like, I think we talked in text a little bit about it, mm-hmm. but just kind of about how it was like a shit show, something like that. But we didn't actually like get into the like nitty gritty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any parts to you that, or let's put it this way, uh, who came out on top for you? Oh, it's definitely, it was definitely Biden. So not even just because he was good. I, I don't, I think like he didn't know how to handle it, honestly. Uh, well, okay, maybe that's excessive. Let's say for the most part, I don't think he did too well. But the thing is like Trump looked so awful and like such an asshole that it just by default made Joe look good. You know, I actually thought that Biden held his own. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, for example, um, there was um, a moment when Trump brought up his son. And he wanted to, he was referring to Hunter Biden and um, his deals with uh, Ukraine and, and all that, except uh, Joe was very ta- like tactical about it. He, he kind of deflected and uh, made it about his son, Bo Biden, mm-hmm. right, who served in the military and they kind of changed the pacing of the conversation. So as far as that debate format and being able to, uh, you know, uh, deflect off certain talking points that if you were... Um, attacked on it could actually uh create a problem for you it could cause you to misspeak and and things of that nature i thought that there were moments where uh he was pretty good um there was a point when i i I think trump was trying to uh speak over biden Uh, Mm -hmm. this was several times during the debate but there was one point when he kept saying certain buzzwords like mm-hmm. socialism, manifesto, buzzword, like bad word, bad word, bad word, just interrupting everything that he was saying. Mm-hmm. And then there was a point where Biden was like, will you shut up, man, yeah. or whatever. And that was awesome. That was just cool. Like, I, I mean, from one perspective, it was very unpresidential, this. <laughs> the least. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. But um at least it was an authentic interaction as far as that goes. There wasn't that uh, structured, fake representation of what people uh, would like you to look like. True, but here's why I actually dislike that. Because debates are supposed to be structured. When they're not, like, shit like that happens. When one person just continuously talks over the other. And by the way, the thing that I disliked about Biden the most was that, like, you know how Bill Morrow, I don't know, maybe you don't know. Uh, but Bill, Bill Maher always says that like Democrats have this thing with the, with the pattern of not going for the jugular when they have information or like really good information against you know, whatever. 
the enemy, and they never use it. And so there was a pivotal point where Trump said something like, oh, nobody ever got sick in my rallies. And it's like, bro, fucking Herman Cade died because of your rally. Yeah, he he and really no, should have mentioned him. Yeah, and then Joe was like, just standing there, I guess, okay, I guess nobody got sick from your rallies. It's like, no, but that's not true. Somebody did get sick. And instead of saying like, hey, man, like, no, actually a Republican died most likely due to your rally. Nobody says anything as usual. The usual sort of Democratic strategy. Yeah, there was that. And um, by the way, just to be fair, of course, uh, in terms of, um, let's put it this way, in terms of energy, like energetically speaking, there were many points when Trump was very on top in terms of his, he was like really in his A game. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he spoke more than was necessary. If actually he was uh, calmer, he may have been ultimately the winner of that but what's interesting to me is i think i saw some polls where uh americans actually overwhelmingly think that trump actually won that debate just yeah. in terms of um i think it really is an energy sort of thing but logically speaking i, I think if you if you look at uh things that biden was saying i really do feel like he held his own and he did very well there are points when he's even speaking to the camera and he's like go out and vote and all that. And if I, it had a very presidential sort of vibe to it. It felt very important. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was great. Um, I think Trump not denouncing uh, white supremacy was fascinating. Not only um, that, forget about not denouncing them. He pretty much told them to be on standby for him. He said, what did he say? Stand up and stand by, stand back and stand by? Stand, stand back and stand by. And they were like, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, all right. So whatever we can, we can move on from that. Um, the fact that uh, Trump currently has coronavirus, I'm not sure where he's at with that he right seems now. Well, according to his tweets, according to his tweets. Yes. Uh, I thought it was funky that um, he was admitted to the hospital, but I suppose maybe that's a precautionary thing. Although he was, another report came out that it was actually way worse than they initially said that his symptoms were actually pretty bad. Yeah, I heard mild fever or something like that. No, no, I'm saying it's even worse than that. So they're wow. saying that, that was actually like, I, I'm, I didn't read into it too much, but I'm assuming what they did was they downplayed it. And then later on, it came out like, oh, no, he was actually doing pretty badly. I'll say this, just, you know, I'm not trying to be political or anything like that. Uh, no matter where you are on the you know political spectrum, left, right, whatever, um, I, I do actually hope that he gets well and all that. Like you, you, you don't, I mean, I'm sure there's people on Twitter like, Oh, you know, die Trump, you know, all that. And, and they're kind of hoping for that result. And sure. Uh, but nah, it, it, I, I saw it. Uh, I showed this to you actually earlier. Um, it was like a, uh, not a tweet, like some kind of message from Obama. He's like, he said something essentially the same thing. It's like, no matter where you're on the sp- uh, spectrum, you, you know, you want to make sure that every American is healthy, that they be okay. And he, he wished uh, uh, Trump and his wife, uh, Melania, well. And I kind of, I support that perspective of looking at it um, for many reasons. I mean, I don't want to, this, this first reason I'm going to say just popped in my head. It's not the primary reason, but uh, it would totally destabilize the country as far as that goes. Like it would be a morale hit, especially in the middle of a, if we can survive JFK, we can definitely survive Trump. I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Well, all right. But well, I guess let's move into the playbook, right? right. That was. Yeah. 
So um, I guess to start off, uh, it starts off with Doc Rivers in the first episode. Uh, he used to be a basketball player and became a coach. And um, he, he shared some, some wisdom in terms of like what he learned. He, he talked about what his parents taught him to always uh, work hard. He was always grateful to them. Uh, they always taught him to. Oh wait, and just just before we continue, so just like for our audience, right? So the point of uh, the point of the series itself, it's supposed to be like a series of um, uh, whatever. I hate to use the same term again, but I will. So it's gonna be it's a series of rules. So like every single coach in these different domains, right? Sometimes it's like tennis, other times it's basketball. Um, like sometimes it's even soccer, obviously twice. And so what they're doing is they're pretty much giving you the rules to live by. So there are rules for coaching and rules of managing a team as well as like life. Because sometimes, you know, people are going to think, uh, you know, like, why is this important? Like, I'm not a coach. Why do I need to know this? So it's very similar to the stuff that we talk about with Carol Dweck and the growth mindset. And uh, like you brought up Eckhart Tolle and sort of flow states and whatnot or whatever, right? Just all of this is, or uh, all of these things combined. And so why it's important is obviously because like the ways that coaches end up coaching teams are very similar to the ways, or at least, you know, ideally, ideally speaking, is similar to the ways that we ought to live our lives. So yeah, Dr. And I'm, I'm definitely, I'm happy you introed it that way. It is important to say, you know, why, why are we talking about this, right? Um, it seemed like his rules for success weren't just things that apply to sports or uh, to, to just to coaching. It actually just applies to life in general, mm-hmm. right? Like one of the lessons he learned from his parents is to always move forward, right? Mm-hmm. To not have a... Uh, to never ever have a victim mentality no matter what you are never the victim you're always in control of your destiny uh it's up to you to to do whatever you can in order to work hard and and move forward right and that's how you succeed in life and i mean what what exactly spoke to you about uh the doc rivers episode Okay, so a few things. The first thing that I really loved was when he said that practice wasn't practice. So obviously for most of us, right, when we're doing something that involves work, even if it's work that we may enjoy, we tend to think of it as like practice, right? Something that you're doing to get better. And what I really loved is the way that he saw it was that when he was playing basketball, he wasn't practicing. He was actually just playing basketball. So when, you know, he'd kind of after school or whatever, he'd go home and he'd tell his mom, like, hey, I'm going outside to play basketball. He's like, I don't know what you mean by practice. I'm going to like have fun. And so why I really appreciated that is because that's the way I often view my writing. So even though, look, somewhere down the line, I obviously hope I get some recognition for my work. But the thing is, for the most part, I look at it as something I really enjoy doing. Meaning that if I didn't get the recognition for it, pretty much like 90%, I think, like, I can't say for sure, but 90%, I would say I would probably do it if I didn't, like, have that kind of, like, you know, whatever, recognition or not even, I can't even use the term acclaim, but let's say recognition. Um, And then so why I liked it from him, or why I liked what he said is that with practice, right, is he... People hate work, right? Let's just let's just be honest, right? People don't like to work, and um, I don't like to work. So if I ever saw like my job or my hobby or whatever it is as work, obviously, or at least predominantly as work, it would be something that would kind of deter me, right? Because like, oh, perfect example, something that you and I were talking about before the show started, right? You were like, oh, like I like I enjoyed the documentary, but what kind of pulled me away from it a little bit was because I had I felt like I had to watch it, right? So like work, like in the beginning, like, yeah, in the beginning, right? So I think a lot of times when people view something as work or practice, it really deters them from doing the thing. So um, that's why a lot of people give up, I think. So it's like it's repetitive, right? Or at least whatever, predominantly repetitive, and people 
think like they don't like it, right? They don't like the repetition because again, it feels like work and it feels, um, it doesn't feel like something that you just chose to do, right? It feels like something like you have to do. And, you know, going back to Scott's, Scott Barry Kaufman's philosophy of like, you know, doing something that's intrinsically kind of uh, motivating, right? And so why I liked what he was doing, right? The way he saw basketball was because for him, I think that the success or like the fame or um, the recognition for it was nowhere near as important. Not saying it's irrelevant, but let's say it was nowhere near as important as the actual game itself. So my thinking was that he would have continued with the game. And I mean, he did. He would have continued with the game whether or not he was any good at it. So like when he pivoted into being a coach, what made it so easy for him, my you know understanding of it, was that he loved basketball so much that he had to be a part of it. Like he didn't care that he could no longer play. And I mean, that to me, that was like the thing that I think spoke most to me, that you have to really, and as corny as it is, you have to find a thing that you love to do because when you actually do it, it doesn't feel like you absolutely need to do it. Right. It's like people get kind of trapped in the idea of like, if I don't, you know, become famous from this, um, if I don't, um, I don't know if I can't make a living off of this, right, then it's all going to be for nothing. Whereas Doc Rivers would have said, well, what are you talking about? I'm playing the game that I love. I don't, I mean, it's nice. I hope I get something from it, but that's like secondary in connection to what I really want. Yeah. I think when he was a kid, uh, his teacher asked him to write on the board, yeah. what do you want to be when you grow up? And he wrote a pro basketball player mm-hmm. and she said, that's ridiculous nonsense, right? She erased it. She said, really write down what you want to be. He wrote again, a pro basketball player. So she takes it off the board again and sends him home and and talks to his dad, something like that. And his dad gives him a speech about, you know, if you don't listen to your teachers, if you don't try to uh, work hard, you can't achieve anything anyway, right? So that was something he actually took from his dad. But then still the next day, he goes back to school and teacher asks him, okay, now write up what your goal is. What do you want to be? And he still put a pro basketball player. Yeah. And that, that, that's such a testament to his passion for the game, right? And similar to you as far as writing goes, um, for me doing the podcast, whether we get recognition or not, it feels extremely valuable to try to put certain ideas out there because uh, it feels like as yet certain information is not widely accessible and we're bombarded with stimulus all the time. Right. And it's, it's very, now it's not even like what used to be the thing is there are only a few things you could watch right now. There's a million different things you can watch and um, give your time to. And so attention is, is scattered. Right. Um, so it's very hard to teach certain things um, that are that are vital, like critical thinking, nuanced thinking, um, rules for success, right? So it's it feels like a like it's a, my purpose slash our purpose, since of course we're working together to to put this kind of stuff out there. So I feel very like intrinsically motivated to to do this. Also, uh, you shouldn't try to do this in order to get, you know, seek recognition or uh, make money and all this. But counterintuitively, uh, if, if you look at any examples of success, most of these people just consistently work at it. They consistently up their game. They consistently change. And they even if it's uncomfortable, they consistently do what they need to do and move forward and that intrinsic motivation to keep doing that thing is actually what ends up making them successful counterintuitively so it's just like a different mindset you you can't be thinking like i need to 
I'm sure there's counter examples to this. Any generalization is going to have counter examples, but you shouldn't be trying to seek fame or seek success uh, as a goal in itself. Yes. Uh, doing the thing you love as the goal in itself counterintuitively brings those things to you. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so it's like it could be an indirect goal, whereas you're saying to yourself, you know, um, instead of saying, like, obviously, you know, I want to become famous, you're saying instead, hey, you know, like, I want to become famous doing this thing, but I'd rather do this thing, right? This is actually what matters to me most, meaning that I can take the fame or I can leave it, right? So yeah. what happens, unfortunately, and I mean, I don't want to get too much into this. I do think the point is important to make, but it, because it could literally just veer us off and take us into a whole other direction that I don't want to do, um, the, Rogan was on, you know, the Lex Freeman podcast recently. So yes. I don't know if you got to hear it. It's such a good I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. I actually, yeah, I ended up writing about it too. Um, so like Rogan was talking about like how people get trapped in the, you know, the ego and they want to like when they, you know, particularly comedians where he was saying that, look, they want to become famous so badly that it literally sort of hijacks their work. And so for him, the work itself has to be important, right? I don't remember exactly how he conceptualized it, but my understanding of it is, is that if you want fame, everybody wants it to some extent. So I, it's not a bad thing, but indirectly speaking, it can only be a good one. So for my understanding of like, you know, whatever, again, recognition, fame, fortune, however you want to kind of conceptualize it, is that the person who wants to be good at the craft, right, is usually, if they're good at it, obviously, is usually the person that's going to get all of those things. But if they want them too much, like Rogan, it's like or what Rogan said, it's going to kind of psych you out or it might even get you to kind of corrupt yourself and to do things you might have not done, or might have not done otherwise, right? Like Rogan talked about people stealing jokes, right? Because it's like they want it so desperately and they do anything for it. And I mean, look, anything that's an obsession, I think literally becomes a terrible thing. Um, so, I mean, and look, I know sometimes and somebody could be like, wait, but wasn't like Doc Rivers obsessed or whatever? I would say yes and no. So he wasn't obsessed in an unhealthy way. For him, he was obsessed with the game itself, right? I think obsession depends on where your focus is on. So he was obsessed with getting better. I think that's a good thing. He wasn't obsessed with the rewards because once you become obsessed with the rewards and you feel like, oh my God, this isn't going anywhere, then all of a sudden the temptation comes in and it makes it really easy for you to take, you know, whatever the quote unquote kind of corrupt route. So what I liked about Doc Rivers is that he really just loved the game and i mean that's it for me and then sort of the moving forward to from my understanding the mover the moving forward part probably came easy to him because it was like yeah but i want to get better at this like this is it for me this is the thing that i love most like why it's either i give up or i move forward and get better i don't want to give up well another thing he said is um success isn't always a rosy thing right it's not always uh easy there are times when you have to do something and you're not feeling it but the thing is, what he taught is to push through that, right? And again, to move forward. And one of the things that I thought was very uh, important that he instilled to his team was this concept of Ubuntu, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I forget how he, uh, he was introduced to it. Uh, somebody uh, told him, oh, look up Ubuntu. Oh, yeah, and, sorry, who was it? No, he was at a meeting. Yeah, yeah, this lady who was at the meeting with him at some hotel or whatever that he was on the board of, she came up to him and she's like, no, dude, you like need to really look into this. And she kept saying like, it's not a word. He's like, what do you mean? It's like, it's not a word. It's, it's a way of life. So then later that night, he, he looks it up and he finds out uh, the meaning of it, uh, which is something along the lines of, I am because you are, right? And, and what does that mean? It means that we don't exist independently of each other. We 
essentially depend on each other for our existence. We, uh, we're all on the team, essentially, right? And he, he began to teach that to, to his team. Like, the better, the better you are, the better I am because we're this well-oiled machine and we work on the, essentially the, the emergent that occurs because of that working together, the better you are, the better I am, the better I am, the better you are. And when he taught that to his team, that actually stuck. Like they, they made jokes, you know, again, like not, it's not all uh, just seriousness, right? I mean, a lot of these uh, things, like you could take a serious tone towards success, but actually, the idea was to just instill a certain principle inside of you. The persona or the character of the person who's instilling it is not so, um, it's not necessarily as important as you would think. It's not like just like everybody, rah, rah, get together. It's like, you know, you, different people have different dispositions. But as long as they understood that principle, they each added something to the team, which led to this great emergent, this great um, uh, aggregate of success right and i i thought that was that was amazing um he he also talked about things like putting your your heart on the line you know putting uh putting uh, everything on the line essentially always always again moving forward right and not to be afraid to get close to your uh team like other coaches would tell him uh no don't get close to the players they're only gonna break your heart right but and this is something I think applies to life too, which is interesting. Oh, by the way, it also applies to therapy. That's actually what we get taught in school too. Don't ever get too attached to your patients. I'm not kidding. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he disagreed with that. He thinks, no, 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 get as close to them as possible. Yeah, some people will disappoint you. Doesn't matter. It's my job to make sure that they uh, succeed and that um, we do the best we can. So what I like about that is it also applies kind of to just to relationships in general, right? Say you were hurt in the past and you, you say to yourself, no, no, don't get close to them. I learned you don't get close to them. That's how you protect yourself. That's how you feel okay all the time or as good as you can. Mm -hmm. But essentially he's like, no, 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 keep taking that risk. Keep, keep putting your heart on the line, right? And you will be rewarded. Uh, essentially the greater the risk, the greater the reward. And even inevitable. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and he did say that. He did say some people definitely disappointed him. And it was rough. But it was still to him overall more rewarding that he kept getting as close as possible. Right. And you apply that to relationships. Like, let's say in, in life, you know, uh, let's say uh, you were hurt before. Well, it doesn't matter. Well, it matters. Learn from it, of course. But move forward and put your heart on the line, right? Try, try with this other person, put, put everything out there. And then if I had to, I mean, this is just guesswork for me at this point. I don't know for sure. Cause I obviously don't know doc rivers. Um, but my thinking is like what I usually help people do is what I help them depersonalize. And what I mean by that is like, if you were hurt by somebody, there's a high, high probability that really had nothing to do with you. So if let's say, you know, that person was in love with you one day and then the next day they weren't, I mean, it's very difficult, right? People's feelings. I mean, I, yeah, sometimes they definitely are wishy-washy, but then if they are, it usually has nothing to do with you because then the question is, okay, um, did 
you change in the past week or whatever it was? No. Uh, okay, so if not, right, were you like an asshole or something? Or did you reveal something that your partner didn't know about? No, I'm still the same person. I'm like, right. So I'm like, it kind of just seems like, you know, the infatuation wore off and now this person is again looking for something new and exciting, which has nothing to do with you and it's not your fault. So, I mean, obviously, I know Dr. Rivers is not, you know, trying to get sort of psychotherapeutic about it. But, um, but my point is that I think that the thing that helps people become attached to others or get closer to becoming attached to others is that they depersonalize. They see it as, okay, yes, this person broke my heart, but it has nothing to do with me. And this person is likely going to break other people's hearts too, because that's likely their pattern. And um, so my thinking is that when it comes to like, putting your heart on the line or whatever, a lot of us, just because it's natural, we take it really personally. And it's very easy to say, well, I'm not going to date again because this person did this to me. But the interesting thing is that you're the one who's really hurting yourself in the end because that person is going to live their life in the way that they were living it before. They're going to continue to hurt other people and hurt themselves. And now in addition to that, now you're going to hurt yourself too because you're going to be lonely, isolated, and maybe even depressed. Mm. Rough. Yeah, totally rough. That's why That's why we have to learn from Doc Rivers. That's yeah. essentially it. Yes. I, I, yeah. He's like our sports therapist. Pretty much, yeah. Um, what, did so, yeah you, what did you think of this one? This is like my one of my favorite ones. The pressure is privilege. Whoa. Yeah, remember that one? Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, no, actually, I don't, uh, believe it or not. But I'll say this, uh, from what I'm already gathering as ideas, you know, come to my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're trying really hard to essentially achieve a goal, right? And you're experiencing that pressure as, as opposed to the safety of not having tried, then that should be considered a privilege. It's definitely hard, harder to experience that pressure. But the fact that you're trying as hard as you are, and you're experiencing that, I would imagine that to be a privilege. Is that what you gathered from that? Or? So close. So yes, I would agree with that. Um, so this is very connected to something that another coach on the series, his name is Jose, um, Jose Marino. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover a little bit later. Um, so they both pretty much said that with pressure. Well, I, let me not say that Doc Rivers said this. I know Jose said this. He said, look, man, he's like, most people don't ever experience that pressure, right? And so why I'm actually mentioning this before I talk about Doc is actually what you're saying is very much closer to Jose's interpretation of it rather than Doc's. Yeah. So Jose's like, look, man, he's like, most people will never experience this kind of pressure in their entire lives ever, right? He's like, I experience it often. Obviously, my team experiences it often. But he's like, but is that worse than never experiencing it all? Is it worse than being some person who's like, you know, kind of like, like blah about their lives he's like no i would take the pressure over this any day of the any day of the week right so for him he would probably say that it's a privilege right because you're blessed with it right although it has you know the downside of you know you're like fucking stressed out the entire time um but the upside is like you know there's a lot of great sort of uh, potential for reward involved so i think your interpretation is very similar to his um from my understanding doc's interpretation was that the pressure is actually earned so he's like look if we have the like the pressure and the privilege of being in the final we earned it right that's it you put yourself in this position so by going through you know all of these different you know the grinds of the practices by going through these really difficult games and the arduous schedule of the season by um sort of like you know fighting through injuries by you know honestly probably not talking much or not being in touch with your family much by sacrifice right he's like the pressure of being in the finals is actually the privilege that you've earned by putting yourself in that position so it's like why wouldn't you appreciate it wow wow yeah hmm. yeah it's it's definitely that's actually a very interesting perspective to to take on that 
Yeah, and both are true, I think. Like your perspective, Jose, is right, and even Doc's, where the idea is that essentially, like, you're taking this thing that seems like a terrible thing, but if you, like, if you, let's say you reconceptualize it and look at the bigger picture, like, you know what's interesting? I love to do thought experiments with people. So, like, with people who are like, oh, you know, I hate being stressed out, or um, I hate being in this situation or whatever, right? I'm like, okay, what do you think it would be like otherwise, right? So, um, I often point to, like, this great Twilight Zone episode from way back in the 60s, right? So this guy, I mean, not to get too much into it because it's not so important, but this guy like pretty much actually gets like the wish of having whatever he wants granted to him. So he pretty much gets all the women in the world. uh, He gets all of the money whenever he wants it. Right. And then life becomes awful for this person. Right. It's like, be careful what you wish for. He's and then he has this pivotal moment in the film and not the film, the the show where he says like oh my god he's like this is so boring man he's like like this this is awful this is no way to live and like all of these girls are throwing themselves at him and he's like you just get away from me i don't want anything to do with you anymore like this is terrible and yeah and every time he goes to gamble like he wins right and they're like oh my god you're amazing and he's like just leave me alone he's like i don't want to have anything to do with this so what the person learns in the twilight zone and hopefully what some of my clients learn in these thought experiments is that the thing that you think you want you actually don't want and the thing that you have is probably the better way of living well i definitely say that it feels better to earn what it is that you get as opposed to just getting it mm-hmm. and why i say that is uh what you were just describing where he got everything easily kept winning all of that that reminds me in in video games if you cheat right which i've i've done before and you get infinite life infinite money infinite this infinite infinite energy whatever right um, in the beginning, it's fun for five seconds. You're like, yeah, cool, God mode, right? And you have all this power over everything. But then essentially the game becomes boring, right? Like now the story that you're playing, you're not trying to get stronger in order to beat the next enemy or whatever it is. You're already powerful enough to do it. So what's the point of doing it, right? So that's that's interesting. It just reminds me of that too. Like un, unearned success is definitely i mean from the outside it looks like a cool thing right if i just automatically got uh 100 billion dollars i welcome that sure <laughs> you know <laughs> but at the same time then uh i don't know uh, it might kill a lot of motivations for things i do in life you know i i wouldn't want that right i don't think it would stop me from doing the podcast but imagine a scenario where it did that that sucks. Then you take away this big purpose, and then I, I might be in purposelessness. Uh, this is a thought experiment, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I really like that. Yeah, and it's like when you think about the pressure, man. Most of the time, what what I find that helps people is like. Um, so here's, uh, man, I, I keep going back to Lex Friedman's podcast. So Ryan Hall was on it too. I don't know if you heard that one, the martial artist. That was a really dope one. So he actually said um, something along the lines of, he said, look, man, I actually regret is worse for me than failure. And that's what I try to help people see. Like if let's say, you know, you go into comfort and look, I'm not, it's not black and white. You should not be anxious 24 seven. So, but let's say if most of your life revolves around comfort, I'm like, dude, you're going to have like a lot of regrets, man. And you're going to kind of go by life and you're going to think, okay, yes, I was mostly never stressed out, but I'm like, but you're going to hate that. And I'm like, and like, literally what's worse? Is it the failure? Because I mean, obviously that comes with the risk. Um, and then, or is it regret? Is it the regret of not trying? 99% of the time people will actually say the regret is much worse. You know, um, believe it or not, I'm going to surprise you with a, a counter example. If somebody does actually have a value system 
where for them, their purpose in life is just to relax, right? Mm -hmm. If that's actually your purpose and you make that your purpose, uh, I think that's a, that's fine. It's not my value system, but that, that might actually even just neurochemically for you, just, you might actually feel completely fine with that style of life. But of course, what you're talking about does cover a lot of people. If, if you don't try, if you are, if you stay in comfort, you don't go past a certain zone, if you don't have a purpose in life, things are just going to progress. Like things aren't going to go up for you or it's just going to go slightly down, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's no increase in life satisfaction from just seeking the comfortable route uh, in general, in general. Yeah. And by the way, even in dating, people sometimes think that they want like dating to be easier or whatever, and they don't. So research shows consistently that people do not like dates or like people or whatever that are easy to attain. So you can't play too hard to get, right? But you actually have to play hard to get with the people you're initially seeing. So I know it's like, you know, counterintuitive and people think like, oh, why can't dating be easier or romance or whatever? They don't mean that. They think they do. It's like one of those things where, again, be careful what you wish for. So... Oh yeah. Literally. No, no, you yeah, you think no, no, I was going to stop and just like but yeah, you you would think that that's how you want it to be, but in actual practice that's not what you want. Yeah. It's weird, yeah. Yeah, and it's like when you achieve something that you didn't earn, you actually don't value it. And it's the same thing unfortunately, I guess with people. So if you're, you know, kind of like going through Tinder or whatever and like somebody throws themselves at you, um, you're not going to want that person. It's just, it, I mean, look, maybe, I don't know, maybe you will, depending on what you're like, you know, uh, I guess taste is, maybe you'll be like, I don't care. It's not a blanket statement, obviously. But the point is that most people actually prefer the chase to some extent. Obviously, it could get to be too much where a person is like so hard to get that it's impossible. Don't do that either. But the point is that when you're dating, you actually have to play hard to get to some extent. So it's like the things that we want or the things that we achieve, we actually want to feel like we've earned them. And also just to backtrack a little bit, um, so moments ago when we were talking about comfort, right, and that being um, uh, somewhere you shouldn't dwell, well, in uh, Jill Ellis's case, who was a soccer coach for the U.S. uh, women's soccer team, uh, she, uh, so they were actually winners. They they were on uh, the so-called mountaintop, right? They, They were doing well for a while. But the thing is, uh, one of her, uh, one of the things she said is the, oh oh boy, what is it? Um, Yeah, it's not about uh, just being at the top. It's about maintaining being at the top. Uh, It's about not just being the best. It's like maintaining your ability to stay the best, right? And uh, they actually had challenges with that. They experienced so many, uh, th- like in their games after they were ready champions, the, the team started to do way worse. Uh, they didn't, uh, even though they had gelled together very well for a while and they were so comfortable with each other, there were things that other teams were trying while they're on the come up that surprised the team. And the coach had to get become very creative and adapt. And, adapt. and what they, she had to do, which was a very, very tough choice. And it seems counterintuitive, objectively speaking, or from the outside, but they had to do like a sort of like a manual reboot, right? They had to get new players into the team. They had to try new drills. They had to change certain skill sets uh, for different players. I think from what I remember that she was looking for even more aggressive players. She said she was looking for people who could like get through the gap, like through whatever the defense was, that she wanted people like who could actually go through it and be aggressive. 
Right. And as she was getting new players, the thing is, it was very uncomfortable for the whole team because all these new people are coming in. There are people who are already still there on the team who are like, who are these people? Right? They were young. Which thing? They were young. And they were young. And uh, the problem was they weren't gelling well together yet, let's say. Um, it, it was very hard in the beginning. They didn't work t- together well as a team. Uh, they were still losing, even though uh, they were trying these new things. And it seemed like a very rough uh, experience to go through, right? As opposed to the comfort of, okay, we had this team that we're used to. Uh, we had to change things up in order to try to get better again and to win. Yeah. Eventually, they did. Eventually, the team did uh, start to uh, get together. Um, they started to learn these new skill sets. Um uh, break the gap, so to speak. I know that's like a soccer terminology. It's like there are different styles of play and they started to embrace this newer style. Let's, let's put it that way. And yeah, they had to get through the discomfort and it's, it's rough sometimes. Like for example, there are things that uh, just to pivot to us, right? There are things that we've had to do in order to improve the quality of the show or to keep getting guests, for instance. And it's always this thing where we keep getting launched outside of our comfort zone, mm-hmm. right? Uh, even today, let's say, uh, we, we didn't have a planned guest for today. We're, we're good for the rest of the month, of course, but for today we didn't. And it's like, a lot of times we're, uh, we started getting used to having guests, right? And we almost don't wanna have another show without a guest on there, right? Mm-hmm. Even though I do like our, you know, our energy, our synergy. And I think that it is actually refreshing that we're doing an episode like this. But because we're used to having guests every episode, it felt uncomfortable to try to do an episode uh, for us together. I mean, I was willing to do it, but I'm not yeah. gonna lie. And- I, I wasn't thrilled about it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm cool with being honest about it. I was definitely not thrilled about it. Yeah, but mm-hmm. getting past that not being thrilled and embracing the cons- consistency right? Of putting something out there, right? Of of value, of course, and something that we both are interested in and all that. Um, That's a testament to breaking through that, like, that, that limit, that uh, egoic limit of like, I don't want to do this unless these conditions are met, A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. But we did it anyway, right? And I, I would say that as we're talking and all that, the flow now compared to at the very beginning or prior to doing the show uh, is, is fantastic, right? And that takes time to sort of embrace that, um, that discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's, there's a value to that. There's other things we've done that are completely uncomfortable or, or that I've done, let's say. Like, for example, you're used to uh, reaching out to guests more than I am, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I started doing that recently, right? and have had success with it. It was uncomfortable for me to do because I'm not used to doing it. But anything you do that you're not used to doing, it's always gonna feel that way. And as long as you know that it's always going to feel that way, that actually gives you an assurance that if you have the faith in order to, you know, to keep trying and to move forward, then you can embrace that new reality, that discomfort lowers. Although I don't think it ever goes away, to be honest, but it definitely lowers. You become acclimated and then you're able to finally do that thing that in your mind was this uh, big thing you couldn't do 
like that seems so scary right yeah and then, um what i loved about like um the episode on uh what was her name jill jill ellis well, I really like that episode is because she and I think I texted you about this. She went the money ball route, man. I was like, this is it. This is what I love. So, um, of yeah. course, I think for our audience, we talked about what well, I talk about money ball all the time. So money ball is that movie with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, where he plays Billy Bean, the famous, um, famous general manager from the Oakland A's who end up pretty much turning a pretty bad team around. And so what was cool about it is that she had the same exact understanding of like winning that he did. So for her, she said, I don't remember what the rule was here, but it was something about consistency. Maybe you do. But she said something along the lines of like, look, man, she's like, a lot of times you're going to get a ton of backlash and people are not going to believe in what you're doing. Right. Oh, it was stay hard. What was it? What was the quote? Hold, hold fast and right. stay true to what you believe. If you yeah. think that, you know, the way, the path to success even if it's uncomfortable in the beginning, like again, you know that you're, if you, anytime you do something new, it's going to be uncomfortable. But if you know that this is the way and you keep, you hold fast, you stay true to what you believe, eventually you will prove the naysayers wrong. She didn't say that. I'm kind of borrowing from Arnold Schwarzenegger a little bit because of the naysayers thing. But essentially that's what she's saying, right? You, 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 you do what you believe in and it will yield results. Um, of course, count, you know, there's a counter example to that. If you believe in something that's not a great belief, whatever, but in this context, it, but here's the interesting yeah. thing about it. I actually think that that's even a good example too. Um, so you should even believe in something that might be a bad belief. Why? Because it's like, you're going to be the one responsible for your choices. So like, look, first of all, who's to say if it's a bad belief or not, if you're, so I'm wrong in my reasoning all the time. Right. So when I like have sessions with clients, look, sometimes I give them like bad sort of feedback. That just, it is what it is, right? So what I'm saying, why I'm saying that is just because with bad feedback, it's very hard to tell what is and isn't bad feedback. So with her, right, she believed in herself just like Billy Bean did, and they got a ton of heat and backlash for it. And 99% of the people in the room, right, would have told them that they're like really doing poorly, that this is a really terrible way of rebuilding a team. And so um, why, again, I love Moneyball. Um, why I love the Billy Bean story is that because he actually did not care, man. And he brought in Jonah Hill's character, Pete, and Pete was like, yeah, man, he's like, look, this is just what we're doing. And people hated him. And they were like, yo, you're going to ruin our team. And he's like, look, man. And I remember he traded, I think it was Carlos Pena, like within the first month, who was like the best player on the team. And he's like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. He's like, he's just, he's not for us. And that's fine. So um, there was a really great quote in the movie where um, Jonah Hill's character, Pete, he says to him, we shouldn't be buying players. We should be buying wins. And that really stuck with him. And so what was so cool about that is that he kind of finally adapted the strategy of like, no, we need to win games. We don't need to have superstars. We need to have people that are sort of cohesively when, you know, when together, right, they make up a winning team and they make up winning, I guess, a winning prospect or whatever. And so when it comes to Jill Ellis, what she did was that she actually said to herself at some point, right, she said like, look, man, you know, whether I get fired, and I, damn, I have a vague memory of this. So I think she said something along these lines. She said like, look, even if I get fired or I don't get fired, she said, at the end of the day, I have to do like what's right for me or what I feel like is right. Do you remember what it was? She's, what, what was it? Um, there's a few things. She, she said things along the lines of risk is opportunity, yeah. right? She said, she said things along the lines of uh, to be a leader, you have to be brave and to make hard decisions. Um, so, I mean, uh, and to be true to yourself, 
right? Right, because at the end, you're responsible for your life and your decisions. That's what I think, like, her major point was, that even if she does get fired or if she does fail, like, she wants to fail for who she is. Because I think a lot of times when people go on teams or whatever, um, you know, coaches, players, you know, et cetera, when they fail, it's like they have to also live with the regret of not doing what they thought was right or of not living up to their potential in the way they saw what it was, right? So when it comes to, like, Billy Bean, right, again, same thing with Jalalas, is that they looked at it in terms of, like, what is it that I can do, right? How is it that I can put myself fully on the line? And then when I look back and I could say, you know what, I'm proud because I was this person that I thought I could be. And I did what was, you know, what I thought was kind of best for the team and myself at the time. And I think that's what a lot of us are looking for. And by the way, going back to success and comfort and whatnot, I also don't think, again, be careful what you wish for. I don't think people want to succeed for the people that they don't want to be. And so what I mean by that is if let's say, you know, uh, Billy Bean thought, hey, you know what, um, the strategy is right, but I'm not going to do it, right? I'm going to go with another strategy. And somewhere down the line, let's say, you know, he would have, let's say, you know, they won the World Series or whatever, right? With this counter strategy. I don't know if he would have appreciated it, man. Because I could tell you personally, if like, let's say you give me a blueprint on something, right? Let's say you were, I don't know, I, I called you one day and I was like, hey, Alan, like, what should I write about, right? And how should I write it? And you would be like, okay, write about this and write it in this way, right? And I did it. And let's say, you know, the article went viral. I wouldn't feel good about that. That's not my article at that point. That's not my strategy. I didn't make the decision, at least not directly. So my thinking would be it's success, sure, but it's not my success. And I think with like Jill Ellis and Billy Bean, the way they saw it was that I'd rather fail as myself than succeed as someone else. I agree with that sentiment, right? It goes back to also being intrinsically motivated to do whatever it is that, that, you, know, that you want to do. It, that's what it's part of the passion. It's part of the whole, the, the play of, um, like, for example, as, as a coach, you don't want to deviate from what it is that you believe in because then it's no longer, it's no longer your beliefs. It's so out of sync. Like you want to be aligned with your, your actions, your, your feelings, your intentions, your beliefs. And the moment you're out of alignment with that, you, it feels like you're doing a disservice to yourself and to your players in that particular context. So you always want to be aligned with what it is that, that you're doing. Yeah. What do you think of uh, Serena Williams coach? uh, uh, Patrick Maratoglu as a French uh, tennis coach. Loved it. So that was by far my favorite episode, even though I liked every one of them. Um, so what my, my favorite part of it was, and I'm glad that we, I guess, um, again, I'm really happy that we're going into it. So I'm um, the part about tanking, right? So why I loved him as a coach is because he was willing, unlike most coaches, unfortunately, he was willing to adapt. So, um, okay. I don't want to be like too critical of this guy because he's the coach of my favorite football team, the Tampa Bay Bucks. So I love Bruce Arians as a play caller. I actually don't love him as a coach. So here's why, um, during the first, the week one, when the Bucks lost to the Saints, he actually outwardly criticized Tom Brady. Look, mm-hmm. Tom is, I'm sure as a veteran, he's like 43 or whatever he is now. I'm sure he can take it. I, I don't doubt that. But as a coach, I actually think that's like the worst thing that you can do to a player. Forget about even blaming or criticizing him to him. Criticizing him in public is like the worst thing I think you could do to any human being ever. So I like Bruce Arians. I like, I, I mean, look, as a coach, I think that they're going to do well. And I really, I just appreciate him as a, like a, just a mind and as a play caller or whatnot. I don't think he's really great with people. Um, and that's, if anything, I would say that's his weakness or major weakness. So going into Pat's character or not character, I guess going into Pat's story, 
what was cool about it is he had um so initially he was training this dude named uh marcos Bag Baghdadis, right? Marcos Baghdadis. So, and they had this altercation where he pretty much said, "Hey, man, like, look, you know, you don't want to work anymore. You're not putting in as much effort." What? Oh, one thing. Prior to that, he was so talented. Yeah. This this um, uh, Baghdadis, he was uh, he was like a son to the coach. They had such a a strong bond together. Uh, he rose from the ranks, like from the bottom of the ranks, very quickly, and became an amazing tennis player. Then after he, he got to this height, he became too comfortable. He yep. wanted to reduce the amount of work he was doing during his training sessions, which led him to where he was. And this was an error. And then, sorry, now back to what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that you prefaced that. So yeah. So with Baghdadis, I mean, he said, look, hey, you know, I, I think I know better than you, right? The winning strategy is actually to work less. And then so, you know, Patrick was like, I don't think so, man. He's like, I don't know where you're coming up with that. So later on, they eventually have an altercation where he says, look, man, he's like, I put in so much into this. You know, I can't believe you're doing this to us. You know, you're fucking everything up, blah, 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 right? So it's essentially me, 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 me. I can't believe you're doing this to me. You know, I've worked so hard for you, blah, blah. So what happens is, of course, Marcos leaves, right? And he's like, I don't want you to be my coach anymore. Most people would have said, good for him. He did the right thing. Like, who is this snobby kid? And like, what does he think? Like, he just, he's so entitled or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what was cool? is that Patrick actually ended up pivoting in his mind he's like no as a coach you're not supposed to ever lose your players I don't necessarily agree, agree with that in the blanket state or as a blanket statement but I do think he's mostly right that you have to try as hard as you can to keep all of your people that look last resort if a person ends up leaving and you know like then you yell at them fine you know I get it like that's a last resort but so, so it, it looks like what he was essentially saying um, the coach he was saying that you have to be there to guide your player. If, if you're going to take on the role of coach, you know, um, your job is to always resolve whatever the issue is. It's to keep the relationship, not to let, um, and this is another thing he said, never let emotions be your advisor. In, in the sense that, you know, emotions can make you very passionate. They can make you, uh, aggressive, they can make you play harder, right? But for them to tell you how to feel about a certain situation is not always great because your emotions and your logic can come at odds. Because for him, later on, he had uh, regrets about um, how he handled that relationship with Baghdadi. Yeah. He. <laughs> Baghdadi. <laughs> Baghdadi. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I. I digress. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, he, he learned that lesson from, from that interaction that he's, he's there to guide his players. He's there to be there for them. And it's his job to help to resolve any sort of uh, disagreement. And uh, it's essentially, it's like, as if that person is your family, right? Yep. That person's always going to be a part of your family. So sometimes letting a, um, an argument or disagreement stop you from interacting with them ever again or create such a crazy issue that you'll never have that connection with them again is is not a great idea because you may have regrets about it later right yeah yeah, and I mean, what I loved is that, you know, learning from that when it came to um, her name is Irina Pavlovic, right, who was obviously much younger than uh, Baghdadi, 
<laughs> the Meg Dadis. Meg Dadis. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, like, so she, I mean, she, I guess they were both just as sensitive, but the thing is she was more vulnerable than he was. So they had this great, and this is probably my favorite aspect of the whole documentary series. So they had that moment where they talked about tanking, right? And so he said, look, man, she was actually, like, tanking these matches. So tanking just means essentially, like, when you're not doing well in, you know, whatever initial moments of the match, you eventually just end up giving up. And so what he did is with most people, and I think most coaches do not do he actually went to explore with her why she's tanking so most people would say like this is unacceptable right you shouldn't do this you're a professional i have all these expectations blah 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 right standard 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 and these are all of the things that you're not living up to right so now we got to get rid of you or you know you can change but if you don't change we got to get rid of you so he didn't do that right he said look i understand right that people sometimes don't live up to their standards but i now need to explore with her why she's not living up to hers right or ours and so what was cool is that initially when he started talking to her you know um she first of course she kind of said oh you know like i don't know things just didn't go well blah 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 and essentially kind of externalizing it right she said i didn't she was implying i didn't make this decision i just wasn't good that day and he's like you know bullshit denial right she was in denial so then what he did was he actually took full responsibility for it he said it's okay it's a hundred percent my fault and he and, said i'm sorry which shocked her yeah 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 he's like you know her eyes got big and she was like holy shit like wow like this person really cares about me he cares about my growth yeah so one thing that was very important that he pointed out is that most players um who are very talented that's well, first he said that's amazing whenever somebody is incredibly talented he values that especially as a coach he loves talent he loves to nurture talent he wants to make sure that they do well he loves talented players but the problem with talented players is anytime their identity as a talented player is challenged they start to give up kind of like how Irina was in that particular example so Normally, she's supposed to be dominating. She's supposed to be playing amazingly. But then there was this point when she became overwhelmed in the match. And because she started to lose, she essentially also gave up instead of still continuing to try. Because if she didn't give up in her head, then if she loses, it's because she wasn't talented enough, right? But if she gives, gives up, she remains in her mind talented. But now she gave up, which essentially... Uh, hinders her progress right so that's why him speaking to her was so important because that helped him to reveal her to herself right and also for him to say okay i'm gonna guide you right this way to kind of just get past that that issue of identity um, but that does relate to life as well yep. right uh, sometimes somebody thinks uh for example i'm the confident one I'm, I'm confident, right? Um, but, and then let's say they're walking outside, they see somebody, let's say, let's say in terms of, this doesn't have to be in terms of attraction, but let's say you see somebody who's attractive, right? So uh, maybe in the past or whatever, you would have approached this person, right? But because you haven't nurtured that ability to be confident, you decide, ah, you know what? I don't feel like approaching them today. You know, I'm I'm confident, but I don't feel like approaching them, right? Yeah, you make an excuse. You don't challenge that identity. So this way you can remain in your head as as the confident one, which is counterintuitive, but a lot of people do things like that. Or uh, they just don't want to be challenged in certain aspects of their identity. But embracing that challenge and continuing to work hard and to keep doing the work, so to speak, 
is what keeps you at the top of your game in whatever aspect of life or sports uh, we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so, and then going back to like that conversation that you had with her. So what I really loved about it was that he depersonalized, right? Another, again, another aspect of this theme. So he depersonalized and said, okay, instead of me thinking about me, 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 look at how she's hurting me. Look at how she's hurting my academy, blah, 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 blah. No, I'm going to actually try to explore with her why she's so afraid. Like, why is she doing this? So eventually as they got to talking, I'm assuming she eventually revealed, like, I'm really afraid of losing the title of, you know, talented tennis player or whatever, you know, the title was in her mind. And so why I love that is because like his knowledge of psychology was just impeccable he understood how to as a great coach should as a therapist should as a teacher should he understood how to put his players in the best possible position and then so with her from my memory of it is that she pretty much when she realized that he cared about her and that he wanted to help her grow he said that she's never tanked again because now like she felt responsible to him then now because they're you know kind of in unison and working together now she thought oh i'm not only letting myself down if i tank but i'm actually now letting him down and i can't do that again so for her right it's like he depersonalized and he externalized and he said you know let me be selfless and then she actually did the same thing she probably thought like you know oh i want to tank so badly right now but i really don't want to hurt his feelings because he cares about me so much so he said with her like he realized that you have to be a human and i can tell you this happens in therapy all the time by the way i've had clients who've told me like hey you know what i really didn't want to come to therapy today but i was really afraid of disappointing you or letting you down and me in turn if i hear something like that i'm like oh now we have to have a great therapy session now i have to really really put everything on the line to make sure that this person who really didn't want to be there, that they get the most out of it. So it's like, it's sort of symbiotic and it's uni- and it's working in unison. And so with him, right, he realized that this whole notion of um, like selflessness, I'm sorry, selfishness shouldn't really have a prominent place in coaching because what you're really doing is you're helping the other person develop. And she got that and she picked up on that. And I think that's the thing that if anything, probably contributed most to her success. Mm-hmm. You know, something that also caught me about him, which is very fascinating, I think this will apply to many of our listeners, and definitely applies to me for sure, probably to you. So when he was a kid, he was not confident. Yes, he didn't. uh, He didn't have many friends. He was afraid to uh, talk to the um, opposite sex or whoever he was attracted to. And he had a very rough time as a kid. He socially his his social skill was low but he brings up a specific uh rule which i thought was fascinating where your greatest weakness can sometimes become your greatest strength in the sense that because he his uh, ability to socialize was low his ability to observe people and see the little nuances in terms of uh their body language um their expression uh, the way they they uh, essentially body language, like the way they moved around and all of that, it was it was fascinating because he was able to uh, watch people and he was able to read people, yeah. and because he was able to read people, that actually was a skill that he had developed, which ended up helping him in coaching. Oh he yeah, did- he picked up on that. Yeah yeah yeah. Just li- quickly then link it back to Irina. That's how he picked up on the fact that she was scared. Like he could read it in her. She never said it, right? She was in denial. She was saying like, no no no, I just wasn't good enough, right? But he's like, no no no, you're scared. Yeah, and and he said something along the lines of when you look at a player, you have to read their body language. It, it tells you so much, gives you information that they don't even know about, and you could see their uh, nervousness, their alertness, their weakness, their strength. And when he has all this information to, uh, for him, it's like as if he had solved a pu- he solves a puzzle, 
and he's able to start to make a plan at that point, which is what um, added to his skill as a coach. Now, why did I say that's important for us or for our listeners? Anyone who, um, this is not, there are people who are extroverts who don't have issues with socializing or anything like that, but anyone who um, did not have, you know, that sort of personality, let's say they're more introverted, that is a great skill that a lot of them uh, develop, right? The ability to read people and the ability to understand what it is somebody wants or uh, how they feel and all that. It makes you more empathetic and able to know also the right things to, to say in order to guide a conversation or to an interaction um, in, a, in a healthy direction, right? So that, that is fascinating, um, being able to develop a weakness like that into, into a strength. I, I think it helps us also in terms of the podcast, right? There are times that, you know, when somebody wants to say something, for instance, right, you're able to catch it immediately. So nobody's talking over each other. Yeah, there were points when um, you were speaking and you notice I want to say something finger goes up or whatever. Right. And yeah. And then, you know, Oh, okay. What'd you want to say? Or we'll do something along the lines of like that with a, with a guest as well. Right. And that helps uh, for us to gel better with each other and to make a, a better conversation from that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that also kind of reminds me, okay. Um, I, we can go back to the story of Patrick, but I really want to focus on this because it actually is like really founded in or not founded, in, but it's really connected to what you're saying now. So Jose Marino, right? So he's the, like the, I guess, famous world famous soccer coach who's kind of a dick probably a huge asshole, right? But what makes him such a great coach is that he actually was talking about exactly what you're saying, is that essentially like the gelling together is the most important part of any team. So he was, there was this really great part where he was saying something along the lines of, he said, look, you know, oh, he did the same thing, by the way, that Billy Bean and uh, Joe Ellis did. He actually re rebuilt his entire team from, um, from scratch, right? It's Porto. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So he did the same thing. And so what he did was that he's like, look, man, he's like, we needed a team of players who would fight for one another, right? And who would gel together and work well together. And so he's like, we actually got rid of a lot of players, even though, you know, it was kind of frowned upon. He's like, because they were superstars, right? He's like, I did not want any superstars on my team. So he found a bunch of like guys who he said, like, look, he's like, what we're looking for. He said, so this is one of my favorite quotes. He said something along the lines. He's like, look, you're going to die with your team, right? He's like, you're going to die being a fan of your team, but there are going to be moments in your life where you're not going to be in love with your team so he said like there in kind of in portugal he's like our team sucked and he's like we had some superstars or whatever but we weren't good in terms of winning so he's like people were just kind of lackluster about it they they loved the team but they weren't excited about it right he said mm -hmm. like, we were looking for is we were looking for players that fit the values of the locals right so the values of the locals were pretty much work ethic right and hard work so he said you pretty much have to sweat your shirt meaning that like when you get off the field your shirt has to be covered and drenched in sweat he's like that's the value for us and then he said we also want somebody who's aggressive and who's competitive right just like all of the people who live here right we want that to fit or to embody right spiritness he called it he said we wanted to embody the character of the town and of the city so what he did was he found like these local guys right who were like he's like they weren't superstars they were young kids right they were really good had tons of potential and he put them together on a team and eventually he said when i like the pivotal moment for me was he's like we were voting for team captains right and then he said the two people who were like voted captain right he's like it was a tie so the two people who were voted captain right we asked okay who should be captain 
one guy said he should be captain because he's better than me. He, and the other guy said, no, 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 he should be captain because he's better than me. And he's like, and I knew it then that I would never have anything to worry about for the rest of the season. He's like, these guys are going to play for each other. So what we're talking about here is this symbiosis, which I think a lot of times going back to our podcast, we have with our guests. If I had to guess what I think happens a lot of times is that like why our guests enjoy being on the show and why they just generally like us is because we really try to our best to make the show about them, right? When they come on the show, right? We, I don't, I think it's, look, I'm not saying I don't ever try to sound smart or whatever and, you know, to appeal to the audience. I, I'm sure I do that. I don't doubt that. I'm a human being, so whatever, maybe that's an excuse, but I do do that. But I think for the most part, what we do is we try to make our guests look good and we try to get them to get to the point where they're able to articulate the thing that they want, that brought them here, right? So we make it about them and they, I think, in turn, end up sort of trying their best to kind of like make it about us in some way too, where, um, you know, maybe they'll ask us questions too, or um, they'll kind of focus on something that, or they'll focus on the topic and relate it to us in some way, right? And I think I like that because like, again, going back now, you could go back to Patrick, uh, more more to Moratoglu, right? So we could go back to him and say, when you externalize and when you make something about someone else, what they internally do is because I think just inevitably, we as human beings love to give back. And we don't want to feel indebted, right? We want to feel like we're contributing as much as someone is contributing to us. So what he's did, what he did, right? And I think what we're doing is that we're creating a relationship that's always about the other. And people like like that. People want to be in relationships where it's not about a self-absorbed person. They want to feel like the other person really cares about them. And in turn, by the way, I think they also want to care about the other person. And they want to feel like they're contributors to their lives. Yeah, right. So like, for example, anybody listening, um, whenever you're offering value, instead of trying to take value, so to speak, um, that's counterintuitively, that's how you get value as well. That shouldn't be the goal in itself, but it ends up working that way, right? Uh, if, if you're in service to somebody else, or you want to make sure they're, like for example, something as simple as, how are you, right? You, you ask somebody, how are you doing? Immediately what that indicates, even though it's a kind of like a cliche thing to, to ask, what it indicates is that you're doing fine and you actually care how the other person is doing. That's, that's essentially what that's saying. And something as simple like a gesture like that conveys so much about what kind of relationship you want to have with someone as opposed to as soon as you start talking to them, you talk, let's say, only about yourself, right? And you don't ask them anything about them, right? That's... That's just one example, but essentially, when you're when you're giving value, that's that's the greatest thing. Um, one thing that I thought was very interesting about Patrick as well is in terms of leadership, right? He said if if you're ever feeling scared yourself, mm -hmm. then then you're not like it's good to act in spite of being scared. But if you're trying to guide someone or help someone, if you're if you're scared, then you're not strong. You're not, you're not in your element. You're not where your attention needs to be. And I thought that was, that was fascinating because that, that does make sense, right? If you're in a conversation and you're feeling, even though kudos for you know, doing something you're afraid of doing, if you're nervous and you act in spite of the nervousness, fantastic. But there's levels to this, right? For, for example, whatever you feel, you generally will convey to the other person as well. So it's very important. What he taught is to be very aware of what it is that you're feeling. Uh, this way you can convey that feeling to the other person. So 
you want your player to be strong, you have to feel strong yeah. um, in terms of guiding them. Uh, he says things along the lines of as well, like uh, mistakes are inevitable. You're always going to make mistakes, but don't let them define you. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I really like that a lot because like, uh, well, at least I would say if I had to alter it, I would say don't let them fully define you. You know, it's like because like everything defines you. Sometimes people think, well, my failures define me. It's like, yes, so what? So do your successes. So if you're looking at the bigger picture, it's like you either should allow everything to do. So this is one of the cases where it's all, it should be all or nothing. So all or nothing is usually a distortion. In this case, it isn't. It's either you let all of life define you or you let none of life define you. Don't cherry pick the bad stuff to define you and then say, here, I'm a piece of shit and I shouldn't even try anymore. Well, yeah, you should definitely own whatever it is you do. Um, I just, I think that he, what he meant is, you know, don't be afraid to take risks. Uh, I know you said this about Jill earlier, but he also said never be afraid to get fired. Sometimes you have to take risks. For for example, with Serena Williams, what he ended up doing is uh, so in the in the beginning he had watched her play, and his player won against Serena. She got into some kind of accident, and then later on she seeks him out, right? Because he's such a great coach, and she wants to work with him. And one day, uh, when they, whenever they started working with each other, he said something to her along the lines of, you know, uh, a lot of times you're unprepared. You come to games unprepared. Yes, you won 13 times, but you could have won 26 times. You, you could have been so much better, right? And she was offended by that, right? But he was brutally honest with her, which is, which is definitely good. And yeah. the most important part of it is that he was honest for her. So just to be really careful with the term brutally honest, because I think people sometimes say it, and a lot of times, unfortunately, they say it and they're just assholes. So when you're saying I'm brutally honest and I'm like, oh, I'm just brutally honest, a lot of times what they mean is that like I'm a jerk off and what I'm doing is I'm hurting your feelings and you can't tolerate it. He was being brutally honest in the sense of helping her. He figured that if I say this to her, what's going to happen is at some point it's going to end up helping her. Like that's why I'm doing it. I'm not doing this for me personally say i mean it's like if i benefit fine right again secondary right but i'm doing this for her because she needs to hear this mm. yeah and she actually ended up being offended uh yeah. the next time she came to practice she didn't speak to the coach mm -hmm. she didn't acknowledge him uh anytime he spoke to her she did not speak back she just moved on and did whatever she was doing she practiced but she wouldn't acknowledge him or speak to him yeah. what he ended up doing was he ended up taking a risk so to speak he went up to her and he said serena listen uh, you're, you're going to listen to me when I speak to you, you're going to respond, you're going to look at me, all of that. Uh, prior, I'm probably getting the order of this wrong, but what he ended up doing is he slapped her on the cap. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, uh, which is a risk, right? Yeah. Cause you don't know how somebody's going to react to that. What ended up happening is that got her attention. Yeah. Nobody does things like that to her before him. Her father was her coach. Mm -hmm. essentially right. uh, so she hadn't she wasn't used to listening to anyone else but this commanded her attention he gave her some rules he said whenever I speak you listen uh, whenever I advise you on something uh, you're going to do it um, also whenever you see me you say good morning all of that and she actually ended up respecting him and 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 essentially listening to what he was saying mm -hmm. so sometimes you have to be uh, sometimes there there are times when you have to be stern right yeah. and you have to assert yourself 
right? And that's something that I thought was interesting that he taught because you can't always be the nice guy. Yep. Yeah, you can't always just essentially uh, just assume people are going to do what you ask them to do. Sometimes you have to command attention. Right, right. So, and it's like, well, the, the thing is like with the people who do that, they're selfish, right? These are the sicko, what they call them sicko fans, right? These are the people who essentially um, like just kiss your ass because they know they're going to get something from you. So essentially they, they're doing what they're doing, right? Because they want to maintain the relationship because they're benefiting from it. So what he's doing is he's putting her ahead of him. He's saying like, look, man, you need to know this if you're going to be successful. You can leave me. I mean, I don't want that, but you can leave me. I don't care. You know, um, I mean, it's not that I don't care, but I don't care that much about it. But what you need to do is more than anything is you need to, you need to grow. You need to become a better player. And so with sickle fans, I mean, essentially they don't care about you, right? They'll kiss your ass till the next day, right? It's whatever, to the next year. They don't care. They care about like being attached to you they're not going to tell you the truth and like going back to one of my favorite quotes from the tyson rogan podcast that person is my enemy i don't want that person in my life i don't want the person who's going to feed me bullshit you are my enemy he's like you need to stay the hell away from me and you know what there's something important about that notion i really like that well right well i mean essentially if if let's say you worked really hard you did let's say kanye west right in the beginning he was um i don't know too much about kanye but i I heard somebody explain this to me before that he had rose to the top he gotten so famous so so powerful in music um and everything he was putting out he was putting out bangers like every every song was was amazing but then there came a point where he had too many sycophants around him telling him everything he did is great everything you do is fantastic so he ended up thinking that you know he didn't have to try as hard essentially and so he ended up putting out music that wasn't great but people kept telling him it's fantastic around him and those people are your enemy right you do want to uh keep doing well and if people just keep telling you everything you do is amazing that's not good for your growth because not everything you do is actually amazing Mm -hmm. right and another thing i thought was very cool that um patrick uh, taught is um, he writes everything down, all of his thoughts, which I think I, is something I'd like to actually internalize because he said people think that they're going to remember everything, any good idea that comes to you, all of that. In the moment, you think, oh, I'll remember that later. But in practice, you actually don't, mm-hmm. right? And there's many things that he'll write down that are extremely valuable to him later, like little sayings, little quotes, things, mindsets uh ideas uh for training or or anything like that um and i think that's great right yeah i'm definitely not going to remember everything sorry go ahead and you're supposed to do that so i think like if you're as you're growing as anything as a player as a coach as a writer for me right i actually do the same thing i write down ideas all the time um so when i have conversations with people whether we're talking about therapy whether you know you and i are having a conversation whether i'm having a conversation with like i don't know vegas whomever right? I'm always taking down ideas because it's going to be something that I'll use at some point for an article later on. So what's happening is that people are constantly influencing my perspective of the world. And why that's such a cool thing is because like what that's doing is it's opening my uh, horizons or vistas or whatever. And by doing so, it gives me more material to write about. So as I'm like internalizing more of the world around me, I'm becoming a better writer. And I can't remember all of it, obviously. So I need to write it down. You know, so that 100 percent, yeah that's that's the thing it, it it is important to write down your thoughts right uh i'm definitely gonna make that more of a practice for myself um i try to take notes here and there but i could probably use you know do that more um one thing that i thought was fascinating 
was also um, there's this rule that came up during his episode with Patrick where it said a good lie couldn't become the truth. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. So essentially how this was used was um, Serena had a match and uh, every time the ball would come close to the net, she was used to getting the ball launched like farther away. This is me simplifying it. Someone who knows tennis can explain it differently. But eventually, so she, essentially, she would not run up to the uh, front of the net to hit the ball. And she ended up losing points like that. So uh, this was something the coach noticed that she wasn't making points from this particular area. So he took her aside for a moment. And he said um, something along the lines of, you know, um, Actually, don't be afraid to go next to the net to hit the ball because actually statistically, every time you do, most of the time, you're actually hitting the ball. You actually do really good in this aspect of your performance, even though she actually was not, right? But he kind of fed her that belief. And then she ended up starting to make points from that particular area because her mindset around her relationship to that part of the court changed. Yeah, and by the way, just just uh, for I guess clarity, it's called the short ball, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know better than me. Yeah, so. Oh no, I actually don't know shit about tennis. I just remember that part from the documentary. They call it <laughs> the short ball, where like it's the the ball that you would hit like that's very close like to the net. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And she's scared. Remember how like she'd back away from it like every time it came to her. She was like, oh, she'd kind of recoil. Yeah, and, and why I think that's really good. Um, see, uh, of course, he's lying right but that lie ended up becoming the truth right just like the saying and how i think that could apply to us or to our listeners is i could kind of relate this to affirmations actually now there there's there are debates on you know how well affirmations work and you know uh, saying things so what is an affirmation right you you might say to something like or write this down like oh i am confident uh i am happy i I believe in myself. Uh, everything I do is amazing. Uh, the world is my friend. All, you know, uh, I have good relationships with my family and all this, right? And these may or may not be true, right? But the whole point of affirmations is to write these things down or to say these things to yourself over and over again. And essentially, the things that it, when you start to believe them or you start to train your mind to believe these things, you start to look for evidence of those beliefs. So essentially, a good lie can become the truth in that sense, right? And I think that's actually a very fascinating tool. I mean, you have to buy into it, right? For example, if you don't buy into affirmations and you you do that, you may get some value from it, but probably not as much if you don't necessarily believe that it's going to work for you. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was a fascinating tool as well. It's it's something I've done before, uh, I've not recently. But there were times when I'd write down certain mindsets or uh, certain uh, frames of mind, cognitive frames, and I would read them every single day. And actually, I did end up sort of embracing the things I would say in there. Um, so that could be valuable to people. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree, man. Yeah. Um, what do you th- Oh, sorry. I was going to say we were almost ready to wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on like uh, how a good lie can become the truth? 
Yeah. So when it comes to, I guess, lie, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, with lying, it's one of those things that you're going to try as best as you can not to do. But I would say, generally speaking, if the lie is for the other person, meaning like if you really look, you know, obviously through your critical analysis of assess that this lie can benefit them, that it's not necessarily for you. Let's say, look, I mean, he obviously benefited from it because I mean, he's her coach, but let's say if you, you know, your direction is toward the other person, then I can ever, then I can definitely see how the lie itself could be for it can be successful because it's for the other person. Lying is generally bad when the lie is for you and for your sole benefit. Um, so I don't know. I can't think of an example per se of a lie that could benefit, but yeah, I can. So, because it's a tricky territory and I think it's a lot to unpack since like, you know, because what happens if a person finds out or whatever. What if you said to a patient, like, um, you, have you ever crafted an identity for a patient? Like in the sense that, um, not as simple as this, but something like, oh, you, you actually seem friendly. Like, let's say they're actually not friendly, but you'll say something like, you seem like a friendly person or something like that. Or you seem like you'll say something like, uh, they they look like they have a certain trait that they don't necessarily have and then you ended up kind of crafting an identity for them that they then try to uh you know meet your expectations or something interesting i actually have never done that before so i try to be as honest as possible because what happens is a lot of times when people actually pick up on bullshit so i would never take that risk i think it's too significant that's uh, fair even if it's like so like from our perspective we can say well i'm doing this for the person but there are generally people i would say most people don't like to be lied to so even if it's for them right so like serena williams may actually actually i mean let's say most people some people don't let's say this right so if you have an issue with trusting people with a lot which a lot of my clients do um they're actually going to blanketly look at lies in a very like uh, let's say black and white way right they're going to think oh if I, you're lying to me i can't trust you so honestly in session i would never take that risk if i were like a life coach or if i were like a sports coach i actually would take that risk right because i mean you're not i mean unless again the person has like trust issues and i wouldn't but you know normally speaking most people are you know okay with trusting other people but i would say in therapy it's actually not like that so if you get caught on a lie and they say like i don't they, they don't care like a lot of times people say i don't i don't care that you're doing this for me they, they might even find a way to bring it back to you and say well you're doing this because you want to keep me as a client or whatever but they don't like it, right? That's the point. I don't really know exactly why. I'm sure it's different for different people, but they don't like it. They don't like being lied to. So honestly, in sessions, I would never lie. I would just focus on strengths. So then to bring it back to Patrick, I think essentially what he was saying is as a coach, sometimes you have to say the right thing in order to bring confidence to your player, right? Um, so I think it's it's one of those kinds of deals. I suppose it's a nuanced thing right yeah, i think you have to be really careful with how you lie and who you lie to so again with serena williams it worked out but i can easily see something like that back. and by the way the knock on most therapists is that they're actually full of shit and the thing that i hear most is that oh you're saying that because you're my therapist and i can't stand that but i get it they really think that you're just telling them what they want to hear because again you're paid to do that so that could really something like that could definitely backfire in therapy so a context is very important then i guess let's ended off pretty much on this um something that patrick said that which is very fascinating to me he said this at the end of the episode he said if you believe that everything depends on you mm -hmm. that you're solely responsible for everything that happens whatever you start to do in life is like magic yes i love that 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was actually, yeah, that was like one of my favorite things from it, from the whole series. Yeah. The idea is that pretty much if you believe you're solely responsible for something, uh, and he's not saying that like, look, you can, I don't know, become a basketball player or whatever if you don't have the talent for it. What I think he's saying is that if there's a sort of barrier in front of you, what you can do is, and this is a quote, you can rearrange your circumstances in such a way as to kind of overcome that barrier, right? But you have to believe that you're responsible. So meaning that like, I don't know, if let's say your overarching goal is to get into basketball, right let's say the barrier is well you know i'm not an athlete i'm not gifted right but i still want to be associated with the sport then what you could do is you can rearrange your circumstances your knowledge of the game um your connections in the game your networking the people you reach out to so you can get you can kind of line up your circumstances in such a way that it'll increase the probability that while you're not going to become a player maybe you can become a coach yeah and, and what's interesting is as opposed to the victim mindset let's say you think that um things happen to you right? And it's not your fault and you can't do anything about them, which may be true in certain circumstances, but let's just make it very general here. Well, if you believe that you're solely responsible for everything that happens, that changes your relationship to everything. As you stated, you, you, you rearrange circumstances. And because you believe you're responsible for everything, you're now empowered to do something about it, which is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and it's a great way of seeing your life, I think. Again, so I, hopefully this doesn't turn into like, you know, victim blaming and blaming oneself. I, I hope that doesn't happen. But the idea is that like, yeah, you're in more control than you or you have more control over your life than you think. Embrace it. Yeah. All right. Well, then in that case, let's, let's end it there. Then uh, everybody, thanks for watching. Uh, and if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at C's underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the, the bell. bell. <laughs> yep. Also, you guys can find us at the O4L online network at O4L online network.com. You can find us on the upper, I think it's left corner under the STM podcast section. Right. And look forward to next week. We have a special guest coming. His name is Dr. David Brendel. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for watching. And we look forward to seeing you guys again next week.